What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Pop quiz, hot shot. Oh, God, here it comes. You're walking down the street. Mm. You're in North America. Yes. You suddenly find yourself in desperate need of working dog equipment. Right. Where are you going to get it? Canine Dynamics. Canine Dynamics. Yeah. Is that where, if you were in North America, you would get all your working dog equipment? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Why? The best. All round good guy. All round good guy. Got Mac a point. He spells his name with a C and not a K. Oh, he must be cool. He must be really cool. All right. Next question. Yes. You're walking down the street. Mm. Same in, street? No. Okay. Now you're in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> you can find yourself in need yep. of dog equipment. Mm-hmm. Who are you calling? Ah. <sighs> Hang on a sec. Let me think about it. Is he a buffhead? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's half a buffhead now. Yeah. Yeah. He's the fading buffhead. He's the fading buffhead. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It's given it away. I call old mate Jason Furman. Yep. From Einzerwiener. Einzerwiener. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Yep. One more question. Right. You are in Ashland, Virginia. Right. And that's very specific. (laughs) (laughs) You're walking down the street. Yep. Which street? Uh, Any of them. A street. Okay. And you meet a person Mm -hmm. whose dog's just being unruly. Their pet dog's causing them all kinds of problems. Yep. Who are you going to refer them on to? Oh, the one and only Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Kindred Canine. Who runs that? Melanie Benware. Uh Uh-huh. The Prez. The Prez of the ISCP. Yep. The one and only. So you will need working dog equipment in North America. Mm -hmm. Canine Canine Dynamics. Dynamics. Need any kind of dog gear in yep. Australia? Yep. Buffhead Central. Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Need some pet dog in home. What does she call it? She calls it stay and train or play and train. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All of that. Who are you calling? Kindred Canine. Melanie Benway. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Love you. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Hello, Pat Stewart. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm quite well. I watched a documentary. Oh. You and I were just having another chat in the kitchen, as we often do before we get on the mics, mm. and I forgot to talk about it, but as we're sitting down here, I was just thinking about it. It just popped straight into my head. Mm-hmm. It's probably good we're talking about it now anyway, because it's relevant to training and behavior and so forth. And I got the preempt to watch it from Melanie Benware because she's a mad octopus person. And oh, it's called yeah. My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. Yep. Have you seen it? No, I haven't, it, but it's on my list. Mate, it is it. absolutely worth the watch. Yeah. I was resistant to watching it when I first saw it because I thought, oh, this just looks like a silly documentary. And it is a documentary. It's about a man who switches careers entirely like he has complete burnout. So I'm not going to tell you the whole story because Mm. it's definitely worth watching. But he has a sea change, literally. Like he goes out and starts swimming in the ocean and develops a relationship with an octopus. Mm -hmm. And, mate, I'm not ashamed to say I fucking howled at the end of it. I was sitting there at the computer last night with fucking tears dripping out of my eyes watching it. It's a really well shot 
well-documented story about not just the relationship he has with the octopus, but how he found himself because of his relationship with the octopus and because uh-huh. of his change of life. Mm-hmm. It was magnificent. Like the start of it, I thought, oh, this is like a little B grade and so forth. But you got to look past that and you got to look into the ethos of the story that he's trying to develop. Mm-hmm. It is really, really, really well done. Mm. For me anyway, like other people might watch it and not get what I got out of it. I might have just needed something out of it and I got it. But do yourself a good service and check out My Octopus Teacher on Netflix. Yeah, all right. Mm. I'll watch it. Yeah, we'll talk about it when you've watched it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll probably have watched it by the time this is out. Of, yeah. I, it's been on my list. A few people yeah, told me about don't, it. Don't skip past it. It's actually worth it. I'm intrigued because, first of all, octopus is delicious. Yes. <laughs> and well, I, I'm actually thinking about not eating octopus now well, after I've seen it. that's the thing. So I haven't in a long time eaten octopus. I used to eat a lot of it because I really yeah. like it, but I heard- some stuff about octopuses. They, yeah. They have brains in each tentacle yep. and we don't really understand a whole lot about them, right? Like they're, they're very alien. They're very alien. Yeah. It was Josh Moran actually had this discussion with me, I think, when we we're in Colorado Springs. And I think there was octopus on a menu or something like that. And he said, oh, I'm not going to eat it because they're really intelligent animals and I've just got to think about it. And I said, yeah, fair enough. Mm. I, well, I hopped into some octopus. <laughs> Some delicious <laughs> Some octopus. delicious octopus. But it was very, very insightful. And just as somebody who is intrigued by behavior of other species, yeah, I really enjoyed, like I was captivated by it. Often when I'm watching Netflix, I'm also working on the computer as well. Like I'm answering emails and just doing general work and I'm in and out of what I'm watching. So I never really truly absorbed the subject matter. I stopped doing everything I was doing and I was totally invested in this documentary. Mm. Mm. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. So thanks, Melanie. That was definitely a golden ticket episode to watch. All right. We've done our ad for Netflix. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, so that kind of leads in a little bit talking about octopus. I can can make this work. Yep. Okay, cool. I had a topic for today Mm -hmm. and it's a couple of fold. Yep. First being, it's come up a couple of times on the show where we've talked about dogs' personalities yes. and uh, our willingness and ability to change those, mm. right? Yeah, a few people have talked about that and there's been some preamble backwards and forwards in emails that have been sent to us and online conversation. That's been a subject matter that's been around for a while too. Yeah, so when you know when Ben Lepensky was on, we were talking about certain neuroses in, in breeds that he notices and identifies and, yep. and accepts as working dogs because that, you know, actually potentially those neuroses are the catalyst for the things that we do like, right? Mm. So that sort of bleeds a little bit into things that we don't like, maybe barking, spinning, that kind of thing. But because the dog, that's happening because of the amount of drive that the dog has. And so you wouldn't change it. We just have to accept it. It's not that we don't consider it the perfect dog, but it's definitely workable and we Mm. do it. And then similarly, we were talking with Denise Fenzi about, you know, behavior modification and and that often dogs have the personality that they have Mm. and we can manipulate behavior, but not necessarily the personality of the dog. While we can convince dogs to do things and they'll be in a very operant model in that time, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're always able to bring them around to really enjoy it aside from doing it for the reinforcer, Mm. right? And I think that's an interesting thing to kind of investigate a little bit. Yeah, it is an interesting topic. And as we've said, it's been in the minds of people for a long time, especially when people are a maiden trainer in the industry and they're starting to see these behaviors with dogs and Mm -hmm. people are coming to them and saying, how do I stop this or how do I modify or change it? 
that's an interesting question sometimes because sometimes you just cannot mm. and you'll put a lot of effort into it and you'll bear very little fruit from the end of it. Sometimes some of these personality traits are deeply entrenched in their DNA. Yeah. And you'll often find that it comes from some of their grandparents or great-grandparents and it's following a lineage if you've got a pedigree dog. Mm. So I've seen behaviours like this before and there was a, a line of Rottweiler many, many years ago and I can't remember if I've talked about it here but I've used this as an example before. But this lineage of Rottweiler would run around behind you and bite you on the back of the leg like a cattle dog would do. And sorry for the cattle dog people I've just triggered but, you know, <laughs> cattle dogs are renowned for nipping heels. Yeah. Well, this was a trait that I hadn't seen in Rottweilers before. And it intrigued me, like, where is this coming from? And as I started to dig deeper, I was really pissing people off because I was finding that it was a phenomenon that I hadn't seen regulate with Rottweilers before. Mm. They're just not that type of dog. And as I was asking more people questions about it, I was starting to get some inflammatory responses. And people were quite threatened by the, the investigatory manner of it because they didn't like me digging into mm -hmm. it, which made me dig into it even more. Of course. You know, once I find that sort of resistance, I'm more likely to lean further into it than away from it. I'm not shy about sticking my nose into things that I find interesting. So long story short, what I had to go back to the person who had this, because they were a pet person, they had this dog, and I said, you're not going to get rid of that. Unfortunately, that seems to be deeply ingrained in the DNA of the dog mm. because his father has been known to do it. His grandfather has been known to do it. And there's been siblings that are showing that same trait as well. Interestingly enough, some of these things, as try as hard as we can, you can try and crush it out of the dog. I wouldn't suggest doing that. We tried a lot of ways. We couldn't entirely eliminate it. I actually referred the dog to other people to see if they could eliminate it and nobody could entirely eliminate it. Mm. You know, it would resurface regularly when the dog was feeling aspects of drive or aspects of stress, you would start to see this behavior resurface again. Yeah. So I think that kind of relates to something that we often overlook in dog training and that's instinctual drift. Yep. Right. And so I think it can be really easy for us. And certainly I'm very guilty of this when we're training dogs to do things, right? Mm. Like when we're in the sports or the work or whatever, and we don't, we don't pay a lot of attention to what the dog is like in the kennel because yep. that's, you know, he is who he is. We don't care so long as he works. That's all we care about. And when we're training work, no matter what that work is, whether we're talking about obedience or the bite work or detection or whatever, mm. We're usually in that moment in a really operant model, right? So we're yep. using a lot of operant conditioning, classical conditioning, where we say, you know, by hook or by crook, we, we, we get the dog to perform the behavior that we want. We pay him successfully for it, whether we then want to use some negative reinforcement to continually push him into that behavior and still pay him successfully. Yep. We then use classical conditioning to layer over some sort of uh, antecedent or command or whatever. And then we've got that like ABC, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we can tell the dog to do it. He does it. He gets paid. And the dog continues to do the work. And so I think that a lot of the training that pet dog trainers or behavior modification people, like their foundation skills come from the sport dog and, and working dog people, yep. right? And I think that it can be very, very easy. And certainly I've been guilty of this in the past is to try and pick up that operant model and say, like, I can create or stop any behavior because I know how to effectively reinforce. I can, you know, as I say, I can compel the dog or, or lure the dog into doing whatever I want it to do, yep. no problem. And then I can show it that there's value in doing that. 
And that's fine and that works for getting specific behaviors. And then we can also then a lot of the time we say, well, I can layer that template over behaviors I want to get rid of. Mm. I can just punish that away. No problem, right? Like a dog displays, I can give an aversive stim via whatever technique I want in that time and the behavior will go away. Mm. And I think that what that part of the conversation leaves out is instinctual drift, right? And that is, you know, we always, or I certainly am a big advocate for the saying of why does a dog do anything is to better his situation. Yeah. But sometimes that's not always true, right? Like a dog just does things for no reason other than that he's genetically hardwired to do it. Yeah. I think like instinctual drift for people who sort of don't know what it is, I think that, is it a squirrel or a raccoon that they always use as an example that will, I think it's a raccoon, will rub its food before it eats it, right? And there's no- a raccoon. A raccoon. And so Mm. you can train them not to do that. Right. You can, and no matter what sort of techniques you want to talk about, you can use positive reinforcement for not doing it and eventually get rid of it completely. Or you can give an aversive every time he does it and he'll just eat it right without rubbing first. But, you know, so then we would normally say that a behavior that goes unreinforced goes extinct. Mm. Right. So if we, if we, punish it away, then it should never come back. And if we, you know, use enough positive reinforcement, you we know, can alter it. We can stop it happening by yep. something else happening instead. Yep. But if you leave it long and, and that's true, you can do that. But if you leave it long enough, it comes back. Yep. And if Which you is the frustration of it all. That's right. Yeah. And it's not that the raccoon gets anything from that, right? Mm. Like what is it? It's just it's genetically hardwired in. Yep. Right. I'm gonna rub this before I eat it. And, you know, maybe there was a time where that was a genetic trait that was selected for, right? Like maybe his ancestors are only alive because they did that. And you know, like who knows why, right? But mm. that can be hardwired into the DNA of the animal. And I think that sometimes we we overlook that in pet dog training, especially like what I find is, and this is certainly my own journey, and it's it's one that is observable in most other trainers, is that first you, you do know nothing. So you're mm. like, wow, everything's amazing. And then you know a little bit. Are you and, talking about Dunning-Kruger? <laughs> yeah. But then you know a little bit and mm. that sort of leads you down a very operant path. And, yep. and it's really easy to, like I say, in the working world, really that is mostly what you need, right? Mm. Like it is simple as we need this dog to perform this behavior and we pay him for the behavior. And so we, we become very operant. But it's not a hammer and nail world. Yeah, that's right. Like mm. when you're dealing in behavior modification or when you just want dogs to act a particular way out of drive, mm. right? That's where it becomes an interesting problem is because like in drive, I can motivate dogs and he knows yep. it's in his interest to do these things. Yep. But out of drive, modifying behavior can be much more difficult. And that's what we see is like that evolution as I was saying is you, you first know nothing and you really do know nothing. Mm. And then you know a little bit and you think you know everything and you can be like, yeah, I can change this. And maybe you do get some successes, but then you usually end up coming around. And certainly it's at a point where I'm at now where you say like, people say, will this work? And you go, maybe, <laughs> right? Yep. Because there's so many cofactors involved in this and yeah. there's no way that we can necessarily understand them all. Mm. And, and mostly for the most part, you know, what we learn is to not really pay too much attention to owners. I think most dog trainers kind of learn that, right? Is like you still let the owners say their piece about why the behavior is happening and, and how they think it should be managed. And, you know, you like you bite your tongue because you go, mate, if you knew how to manage this, I wouldn't be here, right? Mm. Like if you knew what the problem was, I wouldn't be here. But exactly. you, you still let them go through it. Yeah. 
And then you have to observe the dog and you kind of figure it out and you go like, okay, I think you're doing this. And, you know, for a while, and, and I still largely feel this way, I would say like in behavior modification, there's a formula that I follow, right? And the formula is like, what is the behavior that the dog is doing that I don't like? Okay. I observe him doing it, right? It's pissing in the house. Okay. What success does the dog get from that? Mm. Right. So if he's getting some success from it, how can I take away that success while he still performs the behavior? And that will make the behavior go extinct, right? And if I can't take away the success that he gets, then I need to like aversively stim it away, yep. right? And that's a, a general template that I can put over a lot of behavior modification stuff. Not everything, but most yep. things. But as I say, that's a very operant model, mm. right? Like that's very much like- Cookie cutter. Yeah. And mm. and not in specifics, but it, it relies on the idea that I am going going to either reinforce a new behavior, right? Or I'm going to take away success in that behavior. And, and so that counts as punishment in one form or another, whether yep. it's negative punishment or positive punishment, we're going to get rid of that behavior. And that will work so long as the dog is performing the behavior as a means to the, to an end. Mm. But if he's just doing it because that's just what he does, then- you It's know, the essence of fuckery. Yeah. Well, how, like there's no way to change that yep. because of course you can stim it away but it's very likely to come back because it's it's not a decision that the dog is making. It's just what he does. Mm. And I think there's very, you know, I was listening to a podcast, I think it was Working Dog Radio a while ago. They were talking about they've got two clones, right? Mm -hmm. And so at a particular kennel, I can't remember the name of the kennel, but so they've got the original dog and yep. they've got two clones of the dog. And there's certain, you know, as behaviorists, we look at that and we say, you know, everything's operating, the right successes, we, we train the dogs. And they are working dogs, they're malinized, right? Yep. But what they spoke about was, you know, they, they both turn left when they enter their kennel and before they take a shit, they spin twice. And so there's certain- And it's present in all the dogs. In all of them, right? Well, there you go. So there's certain little nuances yep. that are hardwired into the DNA of a dog. And so when you, as, as young trainers, we go, oh, I know why he's doing that. He, he's getting some success from it. But yep. as more experienced trainers, we tend to look back at that and say like, I have no idea why he's doing that. And the, I don't the, know that he does either. Yeah. There are questions in the universe universe are just no answers for and not the ones that will satisfy us you know like at the time and you're right we have this dunning-kruger effect where we feel that it's our obligation to meet everything with an answer mm. and the older you get and the longer you're in the industry you just find that that is almost impossible mm. and sometimes the best answer is to saying look i don't know mm. and that's responses from time to time that i've had to give people because they've asked me and i just look i don't know i really don't know i can ask other people but i'm not sure and other people have i've you know, I've raised the question with before. I've said, I'm meeting a, a dog with a behavior that's doing X, Y, and Z. What are your thoughts? And they're going, oh, fuck, I don't know either. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, well, now I've asked like five or six people that I consider colleagues and peers in the industry. If they're all saying, I don't know, maybe the answer is, I just don't know. Yeah. And I think meeting that head on can be very confronting, oh, yeah. especially when you're in someone's home and you're the expert, right? Yep. You're the person being paid to come in there and they say, why does my dog do this? And you have to go, I have no idea. Yeah. My standard response that. no longer yeah. works for this dog. Yeah. And yeah. and then that's not to say that we're useless. We then say, hey, like we can try things, right? Yep. I don't know why the dog's doing that. I don't understand what success he's getting from that. And so yep. let's just try this and see if it works. Or what you find yourself, I think, more and more going for 
is less the big fixes and more the management to sort of steer it slowly in another direction. Mm. And in some cases like that, maybe you're stuck in management forever. Yeah. Right? And I think- and, yeah, and that is often more the case. Yeah. And so I think sometimes with those overly operant models that you try and layer over to a behavioral problem, you can put yourself in some real danger doing that. Like I recently had um, a client with- a young dog, it's a puppy, but it was a single and puppy. And it's like, there's a lot of issues prior to getting the dog, right? Like it, it was a bad start for the dog's life, right? Mm -hmm. Siblings killed by the mother so oh, yeah, yeah. and was not yep. raised by the mother. And so there's issues, right? Yeah. And the dog, even as a young puppy, doesn't like to be touched outside of its own terms. So it'll play, right? Yep. It's, a, it's actually a really lovely social little dog on its terms. And it doesn't like to be touched when it's laying around, right? And it'll mm -hmm. growl as you walk past and that. They want to try and modify that. And so my advice was don't. You can't. This isn't the dog you wanted. Yep. You wanted an inside dog. You have an outside dog. This dog will walk walk happily and it'll engage when you decide like, okay, now's a play window. And yep. We'll do this. And But this is a dog that wants to live in a kennel, but they want an inside dog. So I go for classic desensitized counter condition. Okay. Mm. If the dog's laying on the floor, then it growls as people walk past. So my first thing was for a week or so, just walk past and drop a piece of food as you do. Right. Yep. So the dog then realizes as you walk past, it's not to touch me, but it's to just deliver food and don't make no clicking, no, just drop a piece right at the dog's face. And so yep. me walking past announces that. Okay. That works. Now the dog's no longer growling, but if we touch the dog, it growls. Okay. So now like brush the dog almost like just an incidental little touch and drop a piece of food. Have right? they tried box training? Yeah. Done and all this sort of stuff, but the dog just doesn't, it, the dog is not environmentally problematic it just doesn't like to be touched outside of so like, what about when they're doing box training and they can yeah, touch fine the dog no, that's fine, that's fine. Yeah, but it just reverts back to in its natural environment it, yeah. yeah so yeah. now there's an issue right so now they've got the dog where they can pat the dog and they deliver food and the dog is fine with it right the yeah. growling's gone and all the problematic behaviors are gone but the dog still doesn't like it yeah it's now in an operant model it's a very hungry little motivated dog where the dog now comes over and is like, hey, I'm here to interact with you because I want the food that you have, yep. but I don't like this situation at all. Mm -hmm. And so now the dog is, it's actually created more of a problem because the dog is, he just doesn't like it. And yep. so now he's putting himself in situations that he's uncomfortable with in order to earn food. Yeah. And it's not desensitizing counter conditioning because there was no event. There was no, I was you know beaten by somebody and now I'm afraid to be touched. And you can then go, hey, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help you. And you can change the dog's mind. It's dogs part doesn't of like the people. dog's genetic he's, constitution. Yeah, just, just not into it. Mm. And I think when you look at this, problem like this taken from its mother at a very young age because the mother was killing the siblings the dog's probably a psychopath right yeah. like it doesn't enjoy the company of others in fact i'm watching the boys at the moment the dog oh, is a lot like homelander minus the powers right i love that show yeah i posted it the other day that it's, it's just amazing it's so good. I know we've diverted from dog training into corrupt superheroes. Yeah, but, but we plug Netflix, so now we have to plug Amazon a Prime. Amazon Prime, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you and I were talking about this the other day. It's like, amazing. Homelander is, he is just an incredible person to watch. Like he's just, he's unraveling and everything yeah. like that. But again, it relates to dysfunctional raising. Yeah, lack uh, of nurture. Lack of nurture, exactly. Like yeah. you can see him unfolding as a person because of the way he was raised as basically like a lab monkey. Yeah. 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 And so- 
I mean, this dog is similar. It was rejected by its mother yep. for whatever reason. The mother might have been the problem or the dog might have been the problem. Who knows, mm. right? But that's a very interesting case in that I even fell into the idea of like, here we go. Here's an operant model. We can create a conditioned response. We can say to the dog, when you are pat, you will get food. Therefore, we then hope that that desensitized counter condition. There's no harm in trying this. No, I know, right? Because you have to eliminate this first to really discover, in essence, what am I dealing with? So you do need to go through this and you need to go through that process of whatever has been learned can be relearned as an ethos in your training program. But if you also look at it and think to yourself, well, you know, like I've eliminated this now and here is the basis of what, you know, like the bare essentials of what I'm actually dealing with. That's when you have to say, I don't think we can truly eliminate this. It's, yeah. it's a default behavior that we may be able to reduce it, but it's very easily recallable and it's always to some degree going to be there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like I say, that is in the DNA of the dog. Yeah. And by creating behaviors that are masking it, we're actually creating a more dangerous situation Yeah, because we're going to convince that dog to put itself in a position that it doesn't want to be in because it's in, a, in an operant model. It's, yep. it's seeking food right? Rather than just saying, you know what? I don't like you. I don't like to be touched. It's not that the dog doesn't like you. It's a, I don't like to be touched outside of my own decision to do so. Yep. So I'm going to stay over here and you stay over there and we'll lead separate lives. And when I'm ready for interaction, you'll know, and we'll do it safely. Mm. Now the dog is thinking, I want food and I know how to make you give it to me. And I'm going to put myself in a position that I don't like. And then, you know, worst case scenario, if this were to continue, then you're sitting on the couch one day and you don't have the food. You're not set up for this sort of thing. The dog comes over and goes like, hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm willing for you to touch me in order to get food because I want some. Yep. And you go, oh, well, I don't have any. And the dog says, well, fuck you. Now you're getting bitten, right? Mm. Because I'm in this situation I don't like. You've tricked me into being here and there's no good outcome for me. So now I'm back to where I was. Right? Yeah. Well, funnily enough, that's why orcas tend to kill trainers. Yeah, when they don't produce the food, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So they're in an uncomfortable situation. You know, the orca is coming over because there's food in the program, but then when it realizes there's no food in here, it just, they get so much frustration and leakage out of it, just think, fuck it. Yeah. And they just self-destruct in that moment. And that can be a dangerous situation. Yeah. You know, when there's hallmarks of danger there, they have to be addressed. You know, like I'm not saying that was absolutely the reason why, and I have no right to because I don't know all the situations around Mm. that. But on the basis of stories that I've seen on documentaries and other people blogging on it and dog situations, which I have seen firsthand and other ones that I've consulted with other trainers and talked about their issues they've had with behavioral modification and issues before, these things are fucking dangerous. Mm. You know, like when you're masking them, there was a big debate going on a while ago in regards to people stopping dogs from growling full stop. And the younger trainer in me, I was thinking, oh, these stupid positive people, you know, like they don't know what they're talking about. Well, it happens to be that they were on something, yeah, you know, and you do have to be very careful when you're stopping dogs from growling because it is an early warning system sometimes that you have to acknowledge, you know, like if I'm presenting someone with a situation that I'm not happy I don't think that I should have to suppress that Mm. because it only goes so far. And I mean, with humans, we have advanced cognition where we can deal with range of emotions and we can express ourselves differently. Dogs have limited in their way and their capability of being able to do so. But with human beings, we have a vast array of ways to do that. But people snap when they get suppressed so much. 
and they suddenly just realize, fuck, I can't handle all this. You know, I'm not allowed to express myself. I'm not allowed to do this. And they either act out violently or they take their own life because of it. So this is extremes I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the common man or woman on the street. I'm talking about when people are in extreme situations and this is happening with dogs as well. Yeah. Not just dogs, species. It's happening with species that we're trying to completely modify behavior that we're not entirely sure about what we're doing yet we're going to our limitations in our knowledge of how to deal with it. Because as you said, we're thinking this is an operant situation. I'm going to deal with it the way that my training dictates and deal with it operantly. And that's not the way to do it. Yeah. So I think aggression's the best example. And yeah. as I say, punishing the growl, because I've certainly seen that as well. And, and that is a polarizing topic that you yes. see a lot of people saying you should never punish a growl because that is the early warning system. Yep. And then you see other people saying you absolutely should because that's the lowest form of arousal of what is the aggressive behavior. And I think both of those kind of miss the mark a little bit in that. So when you see people who will punish, you know, like give an aversive, like a positive punishment to a dog that would growl or, or bark or lunge, mm. they're the people that create the silent killers, yep. right? Like because the dog goes, hey, like, all right, no worries. I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to bark, lunge, growl to give myself the distance, right? Well, okay, now I'm not allowed to do that. I'm on this leash. It's like shaking a can, right? Like I'm going to accept as much as I can until like you're within striking range and then I'm going to bite you, right? And then they say, I never saw it coming. That's right. Because you trained it out. That's right. You you took it away. Yeah. And so I think- you know, while I would never fit into the model, I don't think I like, I, I don't punish bark, lunge, growl. Like I can, I'm more of a like negative reinforcement out of that behavior, very mm. low level. So that the reason the dog is not, is stopping it is not necessarily because it's a uh, aversive, but there's a path out. I'm showing him a yeah. path out. In my opinion, I think we're on the same wavelength here. In my opinion, I believe the best way to do this now after many years of experimenting with it and being or having the fortunate position of being able to work with so many dogs with it, my best advice to people now is almost convince the dog that it was its idea to change its mind about it. Yeah. When you develop that sort of strategy and that empowerment with the dog where the dog feels it was my choice to back out of this, and that takes a little skill, and not a little, this takes a lot of skill and technique, both on the skill of the trainer and the handler and the dog, you know, like this is – without sounding sweaty about it, but this is a threesome that really needs to be well-established ahead of time. Mm -hmm. When the three of you, or the two of you, let's talk about the human component, when the two of you can convince the dog that this was my idea, then you start to see a shift in balance. Yeah. Okay, and that's real empowerment in good training. Exactly what you're saying there. That is convincing Convincing the dog it's its idea really takes on the form of like changing the dog's mind Absolutely. about the stimulus. Yeah. So it even if you are a person who says, no, I'm happy to punish the growl, right? that's a behavior I don't want to see. Mm. You can sometimes get away with that so long as you're also doing the work to change the way the dog feels about that yeah, thing. Yeah, everything's got to be changed. It's yeah. got to be changed from A to Z. It's a holistic approach and yeah, you've got to yeah. look at the whole thing. Yep. And you know, more often than not, like certainly when I deal with aggression type cases like that, I try and be far less in that operant model. Not that you can ever completely escape it, but I try to be less into that and more focused on like what's driving this behavior. Yep. And I know that's like almost saying the same thing. It's it's just a slightly different way of saying the same thing, but mm. sometimes we can get rid of it completely by just changing the way the dog feels about it. And then yep. the behavior is gone. And that's hence the box work and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Right. But you can create a personality in a dog that 
you know, especially during critical period sort of socialization sort of stuff, you can create a personality that now this is what you have, right? And this is what your dog is going to be like, regardless of whether we, of course, if you aversively stim it away or you positively pay for not doing it, you'll be able to manage it, but you will be managing forever because it's a hardwired behavior in the dog. One of the, an example of that of sort of curious things that most people would think would be easy to fix is, you know, I've had an interesting client. I've had a few variations of this actually, but the first one really stuck with me was a Kelpie that chased bikes. Right. And you know, how, there's hundreds of them. You pass millions, like on this street. There's a yeah. hundred of them, right? Yeah. Like, but this dog was, you know, you, you could aversively stim it away, and you could hold his attention so long as you were paying him during, and we managed it over a long period of time. Yep. But more than a couple of repetitions of not doing that, and the dog was straight after chasing these bikes yep. again. And then it wasn't until. Yeah, because you're at the people's place when I, these people, the, their client's house, and you're sort of taking all this in. It wasn't until much later that I found out that they used to live somewhere else when the dog was a puppy, and he was a front yard dog right? uh, on a bike path out the front. Especially with so, the, the posty coming every day. Well, I mean, that's, on that's a, in strongly. Surrey Hills, mm. on a, in the bike path. There, oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So this little eight to 16-week-old That would have Kelpie, been nice at the commencement of that's right so he's sitting there his whole life and people think they're doing the right thing because like oh we're going to be gone so the dog can look at stuff and people and he's a little social little dog and people would walk past and pat him and all kinds of stuff and he'll like that and that's all true but what was also happening was bikes were driving him crazy and it was like during that critical period of socialization Mm. or, or like imprinting it was that bikes zip past you and you activate and he would fence chase them across. But yep. it's a it's a little townhouse. It's got like a, a four and a half meter frontage. So just like little tiny chase, right? And it's and so reinforcing it. as yeah, well. That's right. And yeah. the bike keeps going every time. Yep. And so by the time like I had hands on with these people, that is part of the dog's personality, mm. right? Like that is something he will do without that is instinctual drift for him. Like without yep. any intervention, that will come back, right? Mm. And no matter, like no matter what you do to that dog, he will be able to stop him in the moment and you'll be able to like manage it and you'll be able to stay on top of these things. But left alone to his own devices, he's going to chase and bite every bike, yep. right? And it confuses people because it looks fucking aggressive, right? And the dog's a sweetheart. The dog loves everybody, right? He's a great dog, except for that. And he will massacre your back tire while you can get off and he won't hurt the person. There's zero interest in biting the person, but killing yeah. that tire is the most important thing to him. And it looks Has aggressive. It? Oh yeah. He's fucking he's okay, fucked so he's, up heaps of dogs. Like, because. And that's the worst part about it is that he's actually had succession oh, yeah, to the behavior. To catch him, right? Yeah. And mm. so what he had was no success during his critical period where he was just chasing them and chasing and them. And the frustration. Frustration. Was, yeah. Frustration yeah. builds aggression. Yep. So when you look at it, it really is aggression. Like you would think he's been wronged by a bike, right? Like yeah. a bike killed his family, right? Like it's it's that sort of intent with which he goes at it. And as I say, like I don't know that that's ever going to go away. We manage it and there's been lots of intervention, but left alone by itself, say two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You could go, you know, super strict, aversive steam every time he tries to chase a bike. You can try and counter condition. You can do all those sorts of things. Yep. Two weeks off the tools, right? Mm. No collars, and no, back. no, and it's back to it's yeah. back, right? And that's just because that's who he is. That is a deep seated part. Well, that's of like his telling printing. Yeah, it's like telling Bruce Banner not to be the Hulk. Mm. Yeah, it's just something he can't help. Yeah, you know, it's there, and as soon as he gets stimulated in a certain way, the Hulk emerges. Yeah, and it happens with a lot of dogs with aggression as well. Like that's the analogy I try and use with people now, so they can understand it a little bit better. You know, like. In one of the Avengers, I don't know if it was Thor Ragnarok or one of the Avengers movies when 
Bruce Banner turns around and goes, what people don't know is the rage is always there, mm. you know, and he turns around and he just explodes and turns into the Hulk straight away. And that's the problem with a lot of these dogs is it's there. It's just not seen to be there and people think, oh, it's gone away. You know, it's never there. And suddenly some stimulation happens and they go, oh, I don't know why it's come back. Mm. But this is long-term maintenance that people have got to get in the habit of of working with. Leading back to the critical period of development, and we've talked about this a lot on the show in talking about socialization and raising puppies. And this question has been coming up a lot. And I've been referring people back to past episodes where I've been saying, you really need to listen to these episodes, you know, like box training and some of the work we've talked about with puppy raising. But when Scott and Fuller talked about that critical period, the name gives it away. I've said this before. The name gives it away. Critical. It's absolutely critical. You know, and I have people that have contacted me when they've heard the, the podcast and said, yeah, Glenn, but you know, like we can't be around this puppy 24 hours a day. And I understand that. I totally get that. But what we need to do is we need to put a little bit of forethought into before we get puppies. And I know there's millions of people around the world who don't do this. They impulse buy. They don't even have the setup they need to get for the puppy. And then they call us in to fix their train wreck. Look, without problems, there would be no need for dog trainers. Yeah. You know, and I- And we see the problems. There's 99% of people have no issues and never speak to a trainer in their life. Right. There's an episode with Birdie I want to do into the future on shame because shame is such a powerful thing that's happening in the industry a lot. And this is not me shaming people because some people are so ashamed of themselves with the dog that they've produced or the puppy that they've fucked up with that they are so- emotionally overwhelmed that they really, really take it badly. They're almost so ashamed they don't want to call a trainer out. To all those people, I'm saying better late than never. Sometimes you still need to get people out. I know that the problem might be there. You might be listening to this podcast and think, oh, shit, now I really don't want a trainer to come around and see what a disaster I've created. Well, that's not the right thing to do. Mm. Hiding your monster in the basement is not going to help you deal with the problem. You're better off finding what modification that you can actually do and get someone to come around and have a consultation with you and look at what steps that you can do You may eliminate a lot of those problems and you may have to manage a lot of them, but it's certainly going to be better than what you're suffering with at the moment. Mm. So, you know, back onto the critical period of development with puppies and so forth. Pat and I were talking about this in the kitchen before we, we turned the mics on. And during this whole COVID epidemic, there has been a glut of puppies being sold. So much so that there are people turning up here in the car park thinking that we've got puppies for sale. <laughs> and that's that's incredible. You know, we were doing an NDTF thing and there were two people that turned up on the day looking for puppies, you know, and I said, what What are you looking for? I said, you're looking for a dog to adopt or you're looking for a puppy? And they said, no, puppies. And I said, you realize we're a boarding kennel, like we're a training boarding kennel? And they said, oh, but do you have dogs for sale or do you know where I can get them? And I said, no. Um <laughs> And I said, I need some dogs, man. Yeah, but it's, that's pretty much it. I mean, and the lady goes, oh, I've been everywhere. Like I've been driving all around the place looking. I've been just driving around in circles yelling out, anyone got a anyone dog? Anyone got a puppy? Yeah, knocking on doors. Have you seen my puppy? Yeah. No? Oh, well, could you? <laughs> <laughs> but it was surreal. Like it, was, it sort of hit home to me that there is a backlog of people looking for puppies at the yeah. moment, which is going to present a problem. For dog trainers wanting to get out in business, it's going to be a joyous thing. I mean, I know so many busy dog trainers at the moment. They've never had so much work because people are buying puppies left, right and centre. However, they're also being raised in isolation as well. There are dogs now 
that haven't been able to get out during this critical period. So their growth and development is stunted because their critical period of development is inside with mum and dad. Mm. The issue surrounding that is going to be excessive. Mm. So that's a strong concern that I have. And yeah. I think it's, an, it's a concern that you see when you're talking in groups of other professional trainers. It's a concern that other people have recognised. I see it in when we're talking about this issue, not just in Australia, but all around the world. The IACP members, you know, like a lot of them are talking about the issue of lockdown and COVID puppies and so forth. So, you know, we are going to start seeing in the next two to three years a glut of, of, behavior problems. of behavioral problems. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking as you were talking then about, you know, one of the key traits of most breeds of dogs, with dogs in general, mm. is this kind of biddability, right? It's that like domestication. Yep. Is that the dog is just, I'll go along with the flow, right? Yep. And any person who I understand, I'll follow along with. Like I'll do, I'll go with the flow. I'll do what I'm told. Mm. I'll, I'm a subservient sort of creature. And I think what's really interesting when we're going to talk about personality traits that can't be changed is the dogs that aren't like that. Yeah. Right? And I feel like that's my favorite kind of dog. And I've had dogs in the past that were like that and I didn't appreciate them because I was in a different sort of training model. Yep. Whereas now, like I love the idea of a dog that will work with you, mm. but not for you. Right. Like that kind of dog that excites me. I like those kind of dogs, like real powerful creatures, real powerful beings. Yeah. Right. But flexible in their approach to things too. Like yeah, they, of course. They love the journey. Yeah, mm. yeah. But so those are the dogs that sometimes come out by accident, whether it's critical period like that's manufactured or whether it's just straight genetics that it's born that way. Yep. They're the dogs that when they're not in working dog form, they're the ones that really throw people for a loop, right? They're mm. the ones that really are like, hey, like I see what you're trying to do here, but also fuck you. Right? Yep. <laughs> like, like, because I don't respect you. I don't see you like, especially, you know, the dream, when we talk about a dog, like the, the, from my point of view, when we talk about working dogs and we say like the prey monster, right? Like the dog that will die and pray, yep. like a dog that genuinely looks at a person and says, you are the prey, yep. right? Like I'm the wolf and you're the rabbit. And not like because this has been manufactured or like I've been trained to feel this way about things, but genuinely looks at you and goes like, you are my prey, yep. you as a person. Well, that that's an exciting dog, right? Mm. And in a working dog, we go like, wow, fucking amazing, right? And it takes a certain handler to be able to manage that and blah, 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 blah. But every now and again, you get those in the cavoodle, right? <laughs> or yeah, Jack in, Russell, especially in Jack Russell. Yeah, exactly. I see a heap of in Jack Russells. Yeah, talking about that because we do have the boarding kennels here, and we've got so many of them now, is that we get to see a lot of variations, or even a lot of type in character of dogs. Mm -hmm. And there's no hiding from us what your dog truly is because mm -hmm. you're not here. You're not here, and the emergence of your true dog usually comes out. You know, and sometimes people say, well, that's unfair because the dog is in a stressed state. But when that stress subsides, yeah. we get to see the emergence of the true dog, you know, and people say, oh, I never knew that about my dog. And they're either ashamed or fascinated or angry or upset to find out. Some people are happy about it. Some people are not so happy about it. But, you know, there's a real path of discovery on who a dog is when a dog is in a boarding kennel or a daycare center. Yeah. Because it's like a child that's away from mum and dad, yeah. you know, who really wants to express them true selves. Yeah. And it reminds me, because I keep thinking about that story where Rip was telling you that he says fuck in bed when, <laughs> yeah, when, when you're not there. Like he practices his swears and yeah. stuff like that. Like that story really hit home well to me because he th he thought that was a clever moment. Like yeah, I can yeah. be in bed and dad can't hear me. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've laughed 
just been walking along thinking about Rip doing that. And I've had so many belly laughs over that. But I think about dogs doing that same sort of thing as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's expression and discovery of self and, and behavior and what you can and can't do. And yeah. I, I, I kind of admire it, you know. It makes you wonder, like, I wonder how many people really know their dog. Right? Well, you know, Socrates says, know thyself. Like, that's the success path to real empowerment. And, you know, like you were talking about the other day of working on yourself. And I think most of us who are a little bit enlightened are trying to do that, you know, like know thyself. And I often say to people, and I have for a long time, is know thy dog, Mm. you know, because the true empowerment of knowing thyself, like being aware of who you are as a human being, like what you're capable of, what you're not capable of, where your strengths and weakness lies exactly in that, you know, and, and, kind of understanding the blueprint of who you are. And that is a long time to discover that. Like it's taken me years to really find out who is Glenn Cook? Like who is the person that lives inside this bag of meat? Mm, you goodness. know, and now we're getting juicy. Well, it's, you know, it's <laughs> deep, it's deep. It takes a long time and it's, it's a journey that involves a lot of alone time and also time with other insightful people. But that journey needs to happen with your dog as well. Yeah. Like some people are so convinced that their dog is something when they couldn't be further from the truth. Mm. And it's because people are, are kind of in denial about things. Yeah. They, they're kind of, they have a lot of noise, a lot of words. They like to say a lot of things, but they don't really spend time in silence observing and watching. And that's, again, that's why spinning it back around to my octopus teacher, I think that's the title of the movie, Watch this show because this is now more relevant to what I'm talking about now. Like the patience and the diligence of this man and the time that he spent in this environment, it just, I don't know. I'm even feeling a little emotional talking about it now. It really stirred something up in me. Well, so it's interesting because as I was saying then, I wonder how much people really know the personality of their dog rather than the trained behaviors that they have in the dog, right? That's a fucking good question. So like- I love it. Yeah, because especially as dog trainers, most people listening to us, unless they've been sent an episode by their trainer or whatever, is at the minimum a dog training enthusiast, if you're not a professional trainer. At the minimum, most people listening to this are really into training. They're invested in some pathway. And so- their dogs probably have a bunch of operant behaviors. They're yep. trained a bunch of things and they say, oh, my dog does this and enjoys this and whatever. And I I sometimes wonder, I think, I wonder if the dog really does enjoy that or if you, and, and have you successfully trained that to be a dog that now really does enjoy that behavior? Or is that just like a habit that you've built into the dog? And, you know, would the dog choose different things if it were a given the opportunity. And you what really does- are becoming enlightened because I think that really is an essential set of questions to, to contemplate. Well, well, and I see this because mm. like I, the way I train with, with Remy and Valerie was raised quite differently to him, yep. but I really get to see him cause he's not trained in the house. He doesn't mm. have any obedience. I could, I couldn't tell him to do anything even if I tried in the house. So what I see of him in the house is really who he is, mm. right? The, I haven't tried to convince him of anything in the house, right? I slowly gave him access to the house and like his, his training has only gone so far as that if he did something he wasn't allowed to do while he was in there, I took him away from it, but I didn't encourage him to do anything. 
only took him away from the things that he wasn't allowed to do, put mm. him outside. It was negative punishment based, right? Like he's a Malinois, so he wants to be with the family mostly, right? So when you do something wrong, you go outside. And so, but I wouldn't say, hey, this is wrong. I just say like, yeah, oh, you crossed the line, right? Like yep. now you're going outside and I wouldn't try and push him in the right direction. So everything that he does do is a choice, right? And so something that's interesting you know, and I don't know why, and, and you could, you know, pull your hair out trying to figure out why he does this is just say, where does he sleep? Mm. Right. Like where he doesn't have a bed that he has. He has a crate that he can go in mm -hmm. and I can lock him in there, but he doesn't have a bed. Right. Like there's no dog beds in my house other than in the crates. So where does he sleep? Well, Given the opportunity, he sleeps on, like my house is a townhouse for people who don't know. It's three or like, including the garage, it's four stories high, right? But yep. very small footprint. He sleeps on the top level where I never go, right? Yep. Given the opportunity, that's where he goes, right? Yep. If he's home alone by himself, he goes to the very top level and goes to sleep up there. Like why, right? And Because he wants to. That's right. He yeah. just wants to. That's yeah. just what he likes to do. Yep. And so it's interesting to me to try and have a look because outside of the house, he's manufactured, right? Mm -hmm. Like when he's in work, when he's working, he does everything for the work. Right. And I've taught him all of that. Like I, and of course I, I let him be free a lot of the time. And what he enjoys to do is just run. Yep. Like Remy loves to sprint around and it's interesting because he's terrible at it. Right. Like he's not, uh, <laughs> he's a power dog. He's not an endurance dog, but he likes to sprint for yep. as long as he can. Yep. Right. It's what he enjoys doing. He'll chase anything just for the sake of running around on it. Yeah. And, you know, I had some issues with some behavioral stuff a while ago and was talking about about the best way to reinforce it. And we're talking about food and toys and games and all that. He said, spring, that dog fucking loves to sprint. Yep. So we fixed it on the milk. Just like you do what I need you to do. And now you get to sprint your guts out. Right? Yep. And like he was, he would get that for free regardless, but that was what he enjoyed. So like really understanding what is it my dog enjoys and when he does things, why does he do those things? Right? Like yeah. it's, it's interesting to try and get to the bottom of that and mm. then distinguish what is he doing because it's an operant model and yep. he's been taught it versus what does he do just because he enjoys it? Like, you know, and obvious stuff as well. Like he likes to lay in the sun, right? Yep. So if, if you know, right next to my bed between sort of 10 and one, there's a like sun comes in through there. And mm. so that's where he is in those times. Right? Yep. Like he just likes to lay there and it's, you know, of course that's just nice and it's comfortable for him. He enjoys it. Right. But it's interesting to, to really understand why do you do those things? How come you're into that? And then how can I like, you know, especially as someone who's so manipulative of the dogs. Right. Yep. So like I'm in the work have gone to great lengths to brainwash my dog, mm. right? Like he is convinced of certain things that are manufactured, yeah. right? It's just not true. There's it's some in of the service things, of what you need. Yeah. There's some yeah. of the things that he does and he's convinced of truths. Yep. If you were to ask him, he would tell you straight up, like there's a guaranteed path to success and it's through doing what this guy says. Because right? you told me to, Drill Sergeant. Exactly, right? Yeah. He's hardcore brainwashed in a lot of ways. Yep but then completely not in others. Yep. And I see that duality, right? Mm. Like, okay, like that's very interesting to me, mm. but that's what I think knowing that has helped a lot to then look at some dogs and just go, well, you're not a trainer. You haven't imposed your will on this dog in any way, be it positive or, or, you know, uh, like pros or cons. You've not put any will onto this dog. It just is what it is. Yep. And this is who he is. Yep. Right? Like you've this got is the, this is the core values of the dog. Yeah, this is yeah. what's important to him. And yep. you've allowed, you know, you let a little puppy growl at you and you backed off and now you've built this monster. Yep. And it's because this is who he is now. Like mm. that's that's the core of his personality. Yeah. It's fun to look at. There's an old biblical saying that says, As ye sow, so shall ye reap. 
often think about that and it's something that I echo in a lot of NDTF training when we're talking about critical periods because what stems from the seed grows the ultimate tree. It becomes the, the seed becomes the tree, you know, and the way that it shapes and a way that it roots itself into the ground and the way that it establishes its branches and leaves and whatever, you know, it comes from that. It's either a, a healthy and robust tree or it's a sickly, weak sapling that never really takes any form. And it's the same thing we, we've got to recognize in our dogs when we're trying to grow and develop them as well. This whole observation thing, it's this is a great conversation because it's something that I often think that a lot of us really miss the point and we're so busy with life and we're so preoccupied that we forget to be silent sometimes and just watch. We often talk about the establishment of science and the art and the establishment of science is in observation, watching things change over time or mm. if there's any change at all. And this is how they're even going to discover a vaccine for fucking COVID one day is a lot of people observing changes in, in labs around the world. It's something that's sorely lacking in a lot of training. There's a lot of talking going on, but not a lot of observation going on. Mm. Mm. It makes me think about, you know, when you talk about all these puppies and we're talking about building personality versus the genetic component that's in there and all those sorts of things. It's an interesting phenomenon that we always see with people in the industry mm. who mostly do, say, pet dog stuff, right? So they yep. started out with their own dog and that dog's an, an adolescent or adult at the at the youngest an adolescent and they, it's some random breed and they- they get good at that. They train that dog. They fix the problem. They start training other people's dogs. They're doing a lot of house stuff. And then they want the flashy obedience dog. And they want the dog that is going to be their demo dog or the dog that people pay attention to. And they go, like, that's the one. Like, And, you know, mm. trainer X, look at him and his dog. They're really killing it. Because their real dog, you know, their mixed breed mongrel dog that they got to start with has been this huge asset to their business and, you know, is their demo dog for, you know, behavioral stuff and for pet dog stuff. And pet dog people are really impressed by that and they can use it. It'll hold a two hour down and they can do training of another dog around it. And it's just that, you know, yep. like it's the dream dog for that. Mm. But now they want to drive the Ferrari. Yep. Right? Now they want the V8 <laughs> and they go out. You can't handle the V8. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so they go out and they get the V8 and they get the Malinois or the Shepherd or whatever it is, yep. the, the purpose-bred dog for the sport that they are going to be the world champion at. Yep. And they start immediately trying to influence that dog too much yep. and they don't let the dog develop a personality of its own. Yeah. Right? And that's something we see a lot of, like, you know, because I need you to – like the stakes are so high, the pressure is on that dog, right? Mm. Because I'm, you, I've made you your own Instagram account for fuck's sake. Like yep. people are watching, right? Yes, and yes, and we talked about that recently. Yeah, mm. I'm a professional. Like I'm helping other people, and now I'm going to this, and and there has to be that kind of like realization for those people. It's like you are a professional at, at that. You are not a professional at this, right? Because the, this is you. You are back to day one, week one. Isn't it remarkable how many of those Instagram just disappear? They just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> I've started out watching so many of them in the past, and then gone. Yeah, and I'm thinking, hey, hang on, where is that? Where'd that dog go? Puppy? Yeah, and yeah. that's the issue, mate. And so we see that a lot. I mean, me and you laugh about it quite a lot, as you see, and, and it's a very common thing. I mean, Bart said it one time. I think he might have said it on the podcast, but he said, you know, I see a lot of videos of very highly trained puppies. Yeah. I don't see those puppies grow up. Yeah. Right? I don't see where do they go later. And I feel like that's a real common trap that people get into is, say, critical period, and it's like the stress and pressure that they put onto that puppy because you have to look good. You are yep. my fucking demo dog and I'm going to succeed with you like come hell or high water you are performing amazingly for me right mm -hmm. 
and it seldom works out because they put too much pressure on the dog. They do too much training and the dog becomes like a little prank monkey. That's just like, this is my life. Often the dog doesn't then, it never develops a personality of its own, Mm. right? Other than what it had prior, because it's just like, it lives this life of conformity, right? And it never gets an opportunity to go and get drunk with its friends and smoke cigarettes behind the building. And you know, that kind of shit that that kids will do. They need to do. Yeah, the dumb shit that they'll regret later and you get angry at them for in the moment, but they need that opportunity for it to happen. It's part of their character development. That's right, and Mm. making mistakes in order to learn and that sort of stuff. And Mm. so it's something you, like I say, and I'm, you know, I've been guilty of this, right? I'm, I'm not above this, but I've, I've been through it. Yeah, I'm out the other side, and now I know because I learn from experience. But I see it in other people who want too much from a dog too early. Yeah, and so they're really good pet dog trainers, and now. Now it's like, okay, I want to step into performance and I want to step into competition type work, but I also need this dog to be able to help me with behavior modification cases. And you just go like, they're two different things, yeah. right? So Remy now at nearly four years old, the only time I use him for behavior modification work is when I need a dog to cause the reaction, yep. right? Because he's not that. He's Bell's not- your dog. Yeah, and yeah. so I ha- like I have two dogs for yep. different purposes. Like he is my break glass in case of emergency type, like high arousal dog outside the house, and she's the dog that can be like, okay, I see what you're doing here. You need me to, you need me to hold this down while you train that dog, right? Yep. And I will help you on the path to doing this. Which I think you know most dog trainers end up with one of those. Like if you're doing a lot of pet behavior modification type stuff. Cause you need that, right? Like mm. you need that safe dog, yep. especially if you're working a, like here, you guys are lucky. You've got a kennel full of dogs. You can walk them in that. But if you're traveling to people's homes, yep. you've got one or two dogs. That's right. And yep. but you need a dog that can do that because yep. say I'm dealing with a reactive dog, right? Like, uh, and let's say it's a, a aggression probably based in like, say it was a it's had a bad experience. It's been attacked by another dog. I've now learned that I can repel all attacks by being aggressive, right? Yep. Well, like if you take – now we're going to work on that and you take that dog out into the street, other people are just passing by. And so no matter what you do with that dog, you're not being really helpful because the other dogs are leaving. And yep. so if that dog even snarls a little bit and the people just keep walking on their da- – they don't even know they're a part of your training session. Yep. They're reinforcing the behavior that you're trying to get rid of, right? Mm. So you need a dog that you're in control of. And like I said, Valerie, like the, the situations I've put her in are unthinkable and she just does it because she trusts me to do it. And the obedience on her, like, you know, remember she used to have – when we used to first start training together, she had flashy – Oh yeah, like like IPO style obedience, right? And I remember when we used to train the shed in the old days with Mark and Nev and all that. I used to get you to demo Val doing all the, you know, the middles and healing and everything like that because she was really reliable. She had a flashy head up, like prancing IPO style. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I haven't done any of that in ages. It's probably still in there. I'd have to in a few few weeks. I could have it all back. But what she has is really precise. A good Pet set of foundation skills. skills. Yeah. But so, you know, when I do this kind of work, I can have her in the car yep. and with the crate open and she waits in there and I have my marker board out mm. and I can call her out. And I'm always so polite. I have like a whole change. I think I've talked about this before. Where I'm like, okay, baby girl, please come out. And she'll get out of the box and she'll go to her marker board and she'll sit there and she'll let me get dogs like dangerous dogs within inches of her. And she'll just, she knows not to look at them. She doesn't do anything to provoke the situation. Mm. She will help me train the dog. And 
then maybe if we go like it goes really well and the dog's right near her and I need the I need to solicit some prey or some movement or something, I can tell her to go back to the car and she'll get up and she'll walk and go back and she'll get in the car, right? Yep. Huge help. Remy, he's the dog I can use to proof to see whether I've fixed another dog because <laughs> yep. he will make that situation a thousand times worse yep. because he will, he'll do those things. I can tell him, yeah, like I go to a markable and stay there, but he will, I fuck that dog. He will have his, the scorpion tail will be up in the air. He yep. will be staring straight at it. He will bark <laughs> at it. And knowing him the way I do, like if you were to translate for him, right? If there was a translator, he'd be like, Hey buddy, I see you having a hard time over there. What if I did this? I, I've <laughs> got a better one. This? I got a better one. You know that TikTok one where he goes, What's your name? He goes, uh, Tony. <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you, Tony. <laughs> What's your name? Ezekiel. Fuck you, Ezekiel. Yeah, yeah. That's Remy. Randy does the same thing. Yeah. Like I I have to recognize that in him because I made the mistake of taking because he doesn't really care about other dogs. Like even when we've had other dogs playing in the backyard with him, he's like, Yeah, yeah, like I'm over the play now. I just want to you know, be in the corner and chew my stick and so forth. So you see the same. When we come into PSA, when we're exchanging dogs between the room, he doesn't even look at the other dog on the way in. He's just going, oh, I don't want want to know about you. You've got no value to me whatsoever. But he will answer back if he's answered to. Yeah. So I made the mistake of taking him to a session one day and I thought, oh, that was a classic fuck up. And I had to apologize to the person. I just said, look, that was a rookie error on my part. The dog went him behind a fence and I was thinking he was going to give a static reaction. He didn't. He he was like, oh, fuck you. You're going to go at me. I'm going to go back at you. Yeah. So, you know, he ended up getting in trouble for it. And I thought that made me look like an idiot. Yeah, yeah. In that moment I was because I overestimated the ability of my dog Rather than assessing that truly in a in a safe location, I caused more of a problem than I went to fix. Yeah. So I think we've made a, a point of it before. Just because we're on this podcast talking about resolves or throwing around ideas, it doesn't mean that we're beyond making mistakes or oh, no, you know, fuck creating – we, Mate, we create rookie errors and that, that's the thing. And on your path of discovery – those are important moments that you don't continue to convince yourself that that same thing is okay, that you look at it and say, that's not okay. And also express to the person involved, I fucked up. I said to the person at the time, you know, look, I'm happy to do this again and resolve it. But, you know, it was resolvable. But the point is, is that I just, in the moment, I overestimated myself and the dog. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think what that comes down to is I think – a dog has a clear purpose that you start training towards. Yep. And in the meantime, everything else is you get what you get. Yep. Right? So your Remy's purpose was, well, it's changed a few times depending on his injuries and whatever, right? But yep. like he's to be a working dog. And if it turned out he was dog aggressive, then that's just part of what you get. Yeah. Right? We do see a lot of, in the industry, a lot of sport dogs who are aggressive with other dogs but they're not actually interacting with other dogs. They're coming on the field, they're doing their thing and they're going back in the box. And everybody knows that dog is a dog aggressive dog. Like the people who own the dogs, they say, look, that's a problem that I haven't been able to resolve. And that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to, you know, do the work. Yeah. And that's right. And so you have your key criteria and then later you can try and bring those other things, the the rest in, and you can try and manipulate and manage the rest after the key criteria has been met. And it's like we discussed when we're talking about breeding, like you have a selective pressure. Like, do I want my dog to act a particular way or do I want him to look a particular way? One of those things is more important to you. And then the others just are what they are. And so I feel like it's the same when you're raising a dog, you kind of have to be like, what do I want from this dog? Do I want extreme 
power? Do I want obsession with work? Yep. Well, if I want that, because that means my dog, you know, he's going to, he's, I'm raising him to be a police dog and I want him to be obsessed with the hunt to track, yep. right? Well, it means I can't take him to cafes and have him sit there yep. because if he picks up a scent and starts following it along, then I can't correct, I can't him, correct him for that. I yep. have to allow that to happen. Yep. As a young dog. Now, later, of course, you bring all those things in, but yep. you have to think at the start, like, what's my key criteria? And I need to make sure that that, that is the behavior that is ingrained in my dog. Because especially, you know, we've just spoke about critical period. Yep. There's a genetic portion to the dog's personality, and it is what it is. But then there's the next big important piece is you have this imprinting, right? Like yep. where you can really say to the dog, like, these are the things that are important to you and you're not going to get access to anything else. So don't worry about those. Mm. And they become, you know, you can build obsessions and that sort of stuff. And you see people do that by accident, end up with obsessions for behaviors they don't want. But yep. mostly in the working space, we do that on purpose, right? Yep. So we're like, no, these are, these are what, this is what's important to you, right? Mm. And the dog goes, right. Right. I'm obsessive for the ball. No yep. matter what, if I see the ball, I'm going to get it. Right. And then later when the obsession is there and we can manage it, we can control it. Then we can say, Hey, now I need you to hold a relax down for an hour. Yeah. Right. But in the early phase, it's like when you hold it down, it's for two, five, 10 minutes and you hold it like a sphinx with your ears up and your tail cord like a scorpion in mm. anticipation of release, not just chilling out there. And when you go for those two things too early, I think that you kind of, one is more successful than the other and, and you're going to end up with a dog that maybe isn't exactly what you're after. To use a comparative analogy that we, you know, we were talking about the V8 before. Mm. I remember You when can't I, handle the V8. You can't handle the V8. So I remember when I was a young kid, and a mate of mine had this really lumpy V8 and I was going to buy it off him. I mean, this car was a beast. It was a 308. It was a HQ, 308, mm-hmm. Holden. And I got this car and I thought, oh, this is my dream car. It, was a honey- it had honeycomb wheels and everything like that. It looked awesome. It was a real grumbly, lumpy V8. And the thing sounded beautiful. Like when you roared up the road, it was awesome. But as a town car, it was a fucking pig. It <laughs> rumbled and it, it would sit there and it would overheat and it, well, the, the heat temperature would just climb. The car was very hot. It was uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, there was nothing about it as a town car that was awesome. But as a car to roar around town and get police to look at you and, you know, yeah. like and get other people to look at you and drag people off the line, it, I mean, it did everything exceptional in that. But as a town car, a fucking pig. Yeah, It's comparative to what you've just been talking about in some of these high drive dogs that people want to get. They get them and then they want to turn this dog into a pet. And the people who do do this well, they luck in. Because for a lot of other people, they just don't get it, you know, and then they have to come to an understanding that I got what I needed for the work, but I can't have it as a pet because that's not the nature and the capability of my dog. It doesn't understand this life. Again, this is when you're trying to route a square object to fit a round hole. You're pounding it in there. And, re- and then when you do do it, you realize it has a subsidiary effect on the actual work itself. Yeah. Then people start to say, well, now the work is dissipating because I am modifying. I've squashed the dog's drive. I've, I've squashed all that intensity that I'm trying to build because the dog basically goes, something has to give. Yeah. To sort of clarify what we're saying, because we're saying the word pet, like it can't be a working dog and a pet. We mean by that, like the pet that goes everywhere. Yeah, that's you know, right. Like yes. the, the cafe dog, yes. right? Like, yeah, exactly. My dog is a working dog and a pet. And yep. in the home, he's totally fine. But he knows like in the home, this is no drive. But yep. everywhere else is an opportunity for drive, right? Yep. Whereas like what you what I don't have is a dog that 
walks off leash with me down the street yep. and then just hold, like we sit at the cafe and I, he just sits at my feet and does nothing, right? Yep. Like that's not the dog that I He's I not have. your fur baby. No, but like Valerie can do that, no yep. problem. She can just cruise around with me and that's fine, right? Yep. But like Remy can't do that. And I think it, if we're going to use another car analogy, it's it's that you can't – it's exactly what we're talking about with my van, right? Yep. Like I'm looking for a new van because mine, when I got it, I wasn't – it was when I was leaving the army and I wasn't exactly sure what my career was going to take on. So I hedged my bets and yep. the van was designed to be a little bit of everything. Mm. And so it's not really good at anything, right? Yep. It's fit up to carry people, but they're uncomfortable. And the dogs that are in it, it's not quite – like I can't fit as many as you would if you were a dog walker and you need to fit them all in there. So it's not, it's kind of in this weird nowhere space mm. because I didn't know exactly what I wanted. Whereas now I know like, no, this is how I live my life. I'm going to change it, right? Yep. I'm going to change the fit out because it needs to work better for me. And we're lucky we can change that. But with a the dog, then you see like, well, this is what I have now. I've got this three-year-old dog who's kind of not great at this behavior mod stuff help, but also my obedience isn't very good because I give him too much freedom other times. And yep. he has a, to pacify him at home, he's got a ball and now that same ball doesn't really hold any value when I want to use it in the work. And now right? I'm going to have to disappear his Instagram account. Yeah. Now he's going to have to, <laughs> he's going to have to be given away to a family member and become a pet for somebody else. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, now I've got six different logins to Instagram. I've got to make up another bloody Gmail account. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Mm. I don't even know what our topic was. We just talked for however long we talked. You can't handle the V8. You can't handle the V8. Yep. Yeah. You probably can handle the V8, but just only drive it on big open roads. Well, you just got to be aware of what it is, like what the purpose of why did you get that car? Mm. It's been the same thing I've had with bikes as well. Like I had a – the first performance bike that I had was a Ducati Diavo. It's a 1200 V-twin motorcycle. It's a very powerful bike. It's basically like a street drag bike. It's got a big, fat 240 mil rear wheel. So it's a great big fat tire at the back of it. And it's just a real muscle bike. So when you're flat out on that bike, it feels great. Again, same as the car that I looked at getting when I was a young kid. When you're driving slow with it, it lurches, it bucks, it does all these things. And it's quite uncomfortable. Mm. You know, like a lot of people have said, I know they've refined it as time has gone on. Like the gen one that I had, you know, it bucked and kicked and really, it just didn't feel nice at low rev. You're trying to do 60 and it felt like the bike was going to stall. It pushed and, and wanted to go. And you just realize all I'm doing is holding this bike back. Mm. It just wants to take off. It wants you to twist the throttle and it wants to take off. And I've met so many dogs that are like that as well. And people looking at it going, I'm in conflict. Like I actually got rid of that bike because of the amount of discomfort and the, the features that didn't happen. It's the same thing with your car, you know, to steal all these analogies. It's the same thing with your van that you're now discovering. It suited me at the time, but I didn't really know what I wanted until I knew what I wanted. Yeah. And so – we should say, because this is what people are going to message us about for the next two weeks, yep. is that there are people who have very high-performing sport dogs that they yep. take everywhere and cruise around. But I'll bet you it's not their first dog because they've figured out yeah. in the raising of the dog what's important. How can I get both best of both They worlds? modify their life to suit the dog. Yeah. And yep. so, but for the people who are the exception to exactly what we're just saying, yep. it's usually because they've had mistakes like along both ways and they go, all right, like that's something I can't do with the dog until later. Right. Yep. And so we go like that, you know, I learned from experience that 
you know, leaving him outside with the clothesline and him tearing my clothes off of it and then correcting him for it, yep. that closed a window for me. So that's what I can't do, but that allows me to take him other places and keep the prey and drive and blah, 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 right? So it all can work out. And the other thing is then as dog gets older, that's when you can start to implement these things when the work is done. So yep. like, you know, it's, it's currently something I'm doing at the moment now with Remy is like I take him more places now and I'm starting to expect more of him in public yep. because I know that his habits around work are, are in grained, yep. right? Like that's not changing. And so now I can start to take him other places and go like, Hey man, this is another one of the places where I want you to not be an asshole, yep. right? Like I want you to, it's, I'm not going to pay you with anything. You're not going to get the ball. I need you just to chill out here and relax. Mm -hmm. Right. At four years old with the first leg of a PSA two is where I'm finally comfortable to say like, no, you can really distinguish. Mm. Right. But also he doesn't work off of a field. Like he's not a security dog. I don't expect anything of him. So I'm happy to show him in other environments. Whereas if I was working the streets with a dog, I would want him on alert from the moment he comes out of the box. Right. Yep. So that you're like, no, you're potentially always working. Well, for me, before we do wrap up for me, I was very fortunate as a young guy, a young trainer to have him which I'm pointing to Harley up on the wall because I lucked in with Harley. Mm. And that was, I admit, that was a total luck in. Yes, it was a lot of training. Yes, I had good mentors around me at the time. That was when I first started training with Boyd, you know, so I did all my critical period of development with Kylie Bright and met Boyd and, you know, and the gang down at ADT in those early days. However, Harley had a different constitution than most dogs that I know of and have been around. He had this incredible Zen balance around him that I've, I've still not been able to replicate in any other dogs. And it's unfair to try and do that because they can't live up to a standard that he was. He was just different. He could be brutal and he could be murderous in one instant and he can completely shift out and phase out of that behavior and be as gentle as a lamb and he could be the perfect pet dog. Yes, I was obsessive with training back then, and maybe it was a very good combination of having a lot of time on my hands to spend time with my dog, having a lot of good mentors, and having a dog that was really clear about what he was doing and when he was doing it. He still is to this day. He still is the ultimate dog that I've, I've ever owned, mm. a dog that could be absolutely and convincingly brutal and yet so gentle at the change of a command, a click of her fingers, he would stop and his default behavior was just being a pet dog. He would happily, he would play with children. He would play with dogs of all ages. He would play with cats. There was no ounce of aggression, no ounce of drive in him. When he shut down, it was like, I'm a different person. I'm completely passive to that lifestyle. But at shifting of gears, when he was told to do so, like, because I told you to drill sergeant, he would fuck people up and he and he loved both. He loved existing between both dimensions. Mm, duality. Duality, yeah. How dare you speak so highly of a crossbred dog, sir? I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he was, you believe it? I, I really wish you could have met him. I really wish that you knew him as a dog because I don't know how you'd perceive it, but a lot of people – couldn't help but being impressed by him. And I mean, I was a young trainer. I didn't know what I had. He was just the dog I had at the time. Like it took me to lose him and and to go through a lot of other dogs to realize what I had at the time. Like, don't get me wrong. I love Randy. Like that dog is an incredible dog. He's much better than the work that I actually put into him, but he's no Harley. Mm. You know, Harley was the, he was the unicorn dog. He was my octopus. There you go. He was my octopus. Careful. He was my octopus teacher. Careful, you'll 
we'll have to wrap this up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, honestly, that's how I kind of really got into dogs because I was deployed overseas and I saw an American guy with a military working dog. It was the first Malinmar I'd seen work. Yep. And the connectedness between them, that dog was, it's funny because it was the first I'd seen. So I assume that that's how all Malinois are and all military working dogs are, but they had a, a synchronicity that I've probably never seen since. Yeah. Right. Like a dog could just chill out and be a dog and then be out there literally killing people. And then it'd just be a dog again. And I saw him from a live bite, just go out and the dog out and looked at him like it was nothing. Yeah. You know, like it was nothing. Just like, oh yeah, cool, sweet. Oh, because you said so. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, no problem. I'm, I'm down with this. And yeah. it's something magical about seeing that. But like you say, that's rare. It's a once in a lifetime dog. And sometimes you don't know that you got it. It's like a lot of other things. You don't know what it is until you know what it isn't. Mm. And that's what it took me, the transition of moving into other dogs and owning other dogs to realize, you know, there's another dog that's up on my wall over there, Dutch. And he was a great dog in his own right as well. But he was never, ever going to be a Harley. He was a different dog. Mm. He was fantastic. Like he used to do great in trials and everything like that. Like Dutch was an awesome dog, but he just wasn't Harley. And I tried to make him Harley. And then I realized I had an epiphany one day when I thought this is an injustice to this dog. Mm. You know, I'm trying to make him fit a mold that he'll never be able to live up to. It's unjust. I'm really making this dog suffer because I'm trying to redevelop what's happening because Harley was getting old at that stage when he was, I brought him in as a young puppy and I kind I could see Harley changing, you know, like the life changes were happening. He was slowing right down. That dog still gave everything right to the end, you know, but he just wasn't Dutch just wasn't Harley. And none of the other dogs are him either. And they're all beautiful and they're all amazing in their own realm. And I've just learned now be happy with what you've got and just celebrate the life of the dog. I mean, Biff was, He had very, very – he had some drive, but it was so limited. But, again, you know, take him out and do complex skills training with the NDTF, and he'd entertain people all day long. He'd do amazing things, and he was such a a friendly, loving, balanced dog. And because people said to me, oh, now you've got a dog that is not going to live up to the expectation of a working dog. And I said, yeah, but I love him, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's going to stay with me until the day he died, and he did. Mm. Have you read Meditations, Marcus Aurelius Meditations? I started to, and I haven't completed it, but I, I really need to get back into it. At the start, like he says, from my mother, I learned this and from, and he names a bunch of people and from them. And I think about dogs like that quite a bit Yeah, because you say like, from this dog, I learned this. And I think depends how you want to look at it. Since we keep nearly tap, putting our toe into spirituality on this show, mm. I think Certainly, I feel like I've had dogs come into my life to kick me in the face over the way I felt about things and challenge me. And, you know, like always for better, Mm. it's always a learning experience. But I feel I've been fortunate that almost every dog that I've had has been- It's a teacher. Yeah. Mm. And and has like given me something where I can say like, oh, from that. And and even as I- I'm not looking for a dog for myself anymore, right? But uh, And hope not to for a long time. Mm. But as I train with other people's dogs and especially, you know, when when you travel teaching, there's certain things that you get and like I'll say, like I remember I learned that from that dog. That dog taught that to me. Now, whether it was – whether it was his intention to or it's just something that happened along the way, that's that's where we can get ethereal. But 
there's certain things that you go like, oh, no, that's what I got from you. That's yep. That was why we, our paths cross because yeah. that's a skill that I now have. And it took me a long time to learn about it and see it in you, but now I know it yep. and I'll identify it and diagnose it and treat it in your compadre that I will see you Absolutely. Know, however many times down the track. Yep. Oh, goodness. Wow. That's really? it. <laughs> That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Tell us some stuff about your dog. See, this is one of the reasons on this kind of line is why I posted in our discussion group a while ago that Remy drinks running water, right? Whether mm-hmm. he's thirsty or not, he jumps up and he runs over and he drinks from his from their bowl when it's being filled. Yep. And that's just an interesting nuance. And I'd love, like, I've heard that whole thread about tell us what's nuance and reading that was actually quite fun. All the mm. dumb shit that people's dogs do. And it's just like, yeah, it's fun. It is fun. So in your review, tell us what it is about us that it's <laughs> <laughs> the nuance thing about us that you either like or dislike. Mm. Right. But stick with like, yeah. Five stars. If you want to support the show, best way to do that is Patreon. Mm-hmm. Three bucks a month, get you extra episode, but you know, you could give as much as you like. Yep. Or you could jump on a Teespring, get yourself some cool merch. Mm-hmm. That's another great way to support the show while repping the brand. Yeah, love that. Yeah, the community. If you want some training advice, that kind of stuff, put in the group, group source that information. It's the Canine Paradigm discussion group. That's growing, ticking along. We're yes. keeping things nice in there. I'm taking like a massive step back from Facebook. I'm trying to really not be on there very much at all, but I'm mm-hmm. still trying to stick around in that group. And if you want to talk to us directly, we can shoot us an email. We are info at the Yep. That's it. <laughs> <laughs>